Zrizdwom Christovem. Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome to 2022. Uh, to start the year off, we thought we would go through and see how Ukraine celebrated Christmas. And as is tradition in most countries, the central square in every Ukrainian city was filled with a large Christmas tree and a Christmas market. And in late December, we asked our viewers to rate what their favorite Christmas tree was in Ukraine. And we're going to go over some of the results. So what do you think the most popular Christmas tree was, guys? I'm not too sure. I wasn't. I knew Ukraine did have Christmas trees, but I didn't know there was kind of like not so much territorial, but there were like different ones in different regions and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was news to me when you did the poll. Um, I would always, I would always assume that it was the capital because it's the biggest city usually, and so you'd think they'd go all out for it. Yeah, so the Christmas tree in Kiev is sort of referred to as the national Christmas tree, but then each city has its own like localized Christmas tree where they focus their celebrations on. And it also seems like I'd agree with Andre because it seems like um, every year it's more elaborate when it comes to the Kiev tree, um, and it takes up more and more of the square that it's in. So that would be my guess too. Yeah, so in Kiev, sort of Christmas is now like a huge celebration and you have the central Christmas tree on St. Sophia Square, which has, uh, they've moved the celebrations there since the Yevromaidan revolution. And now the Christmas market that surrounds the tree extends all the way to Mahailovska Plosha, which is in front of St. Michael's Golden Dome Cathedral. So it's quite a big Christmas area. And so according to our viewers, the most popular tree to them was the one in Lviv, followed closely by Poltava and in Khmelnytsky. Surprisingly, Kiev wasn't super popular with our viewers, but I think it's each to their own. And I think part of it comes down to local city pride of where your family's from. Yeah, that is a bit of a surprising result. But um, I, I think what's fascinating, even more surprising, as we're going to get to, no doubt, Alexa, is the cost of these trees. And uh, one would assume that the national Christmas tree that a country invests in might be the most expensive one. But I don't think that's quite the case in Ukraine. Did you want to touch through that? Yeah, so um, this year, the program Hroshi, which is um, a co- co-sponsored by Radio Free Europe and Liberty, they went through and did a freedom of information request to every major city in Ukraine to see the cost of their Christmas tree. And Kiev was not the most expensive Christmas tree this year. It was actually in Dnipro, where they spent 62 million hryvni, or about 3.1 million Australian dollars, while Kiev only spent 27 million hryvni, or about 1.3 million Australian dollars. So those numbers are quite large, but then when you look at other cities, so for example, Lviv only spent 242,000 hryvni on their Christmas tree, or $12,000, which is insane, the price difference. Yeah, I never expected it to go over like a million dollars, a million Australian dollars. I thought it'd stay uh, roughly in a couple millions hryvni, which would just only be sort of where Liverpool stands at um, $12,000. But I think the max that I would have thought would have been like 50,000 US uh, Australian dollars. Yeah, I think Nathan, you've looked into some other international famous Christmas trees and how does Ukraine compare to those? Yeah, I'm, I was pretty shocked with the 1 million figure. Um, and 
whenever I think of Christmas trees, the straight away, the large Christmas tree, straight away the one in my head is always Rockefeller Center um, in New York because I know yeah, it's the one everyone likes to go see when they're in New York around uh, Christmas time. So taking a guess, how much do you think that the tree at Rockefeller Center um, costs? Is it a live tree or is it fake? No, it's a live tree. It's. A, I think it's a live tree. I'd say what ten million. No, no. Are we way off? You're way off. <laughs> so then, what twenty k? Twenty million dollars. You're going the wrong way. Really? Wrong, what? Oh, what is it? It's seventy three thousand dollars for the Rockefeller Christmas tree. Yep, that's what it was in twenty twenty one. So I thought it was interesting that you know seventy three thousand dollars for the Rockefeller Center tree. Um, but then when we look at some of the ones that have been pay, uh, some of the costs of the ones that you were mentioning, you have $5,000, I think one here is $38,000 thereabouts. Um, and then they go up from there, 500,000, what was the other one? 3 million I can see here. Um, I find it interesting that a country like Ukraine spends so much money on, uh, Christmas trees versus, um, America, which only spends its, its big tree, Rockefeller Center, is only $73,000. So I thought that was pretty, oh, that's a pretty interesting thing. Probably worth mentioning, though. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, Alexa, those costs are actually the amount. So for some of them are just the tree, and I think others combine the costs of the whole program for Christmas. Because, I mean, look, as much as Rockefeller Center is an amazing, iconic tree, especially because of our 90s growing up in this age group of New York movies at Christmas, it's actually not a huge, it's not a huge, huge, huge tree, but that's also because it's a real tree, as we've talked about. So um, so I can, I can appreciate that. I couldn't find the numbers for Sydney's Christmas tree because it's probably a bit more comparative that it's in a square and it's, fake, it's a fake tree and it has led waves all through it and things like that so they're probably a bit more comparable but i think the other thing that's probably worth just mentioning when it comes to christmas in ukraine is obviously there's the julian calendar as well as the latin calendar and new year's is also tied very much into christmas and then there's also your done that finishes off the christmas period so the christmas trees when it comes to ukraine actually get a lot more bang for their buck in terms of their longevity throughout a season rather than just boxing day everything gets dismantled quietly and then it's like nothing ever happened in the city in a lot of western countries so i think that's one really important point and then the second part is i think um it'd be fair to say at least in my experience of of how these trees are celebrated in ukraine they are kind of used a little bit like a new year's eve um novirik type you know activity too and they're kind of more like a the feeling of winter and passing that mark of that season is, is quite tied to the Alenka and the trees and the decoration that comes with it and the bazaar that's come into Kiev recently is a, a nice expression of that. So I thought the other thing that's worth comparing it to, it's a little bit different, it's not quite a Christmas tree, but Sydney does spend an annual budget of about six and a half to $7 million on New Year's Eve, even during COVID times. And I think that's probably maybe something to compare that experience a little bit, maybe in a national sense, though, that said, in some of the other cities um, that aren't celebrating on a, you know, I guess um, as as iconically, it might be a lot of money to spend. Yeah, that's understandable. I think also, though, I think Christmas is a time of year where everyone can sort of forget about a lot of their problems. And I think in one sense for Ukraine, Christmas is seen as sort of an outlet where everyone can relax for you know a whole week because the twenty fifth and the seventh are both public holidays in Ukraine for. Um, 
for Roman Catholic Christmas and Orthodox Christmas. So I think, in a sense, it, yeah, it's a good outlet for people. And by creating these very big public spaces for everyone to come out, it sort of lets everyone celebrate Christmas as like a big like national community. I agree, Alex. And I think the other thing that's probably worth thinking about there as well is, especially with... Um, you know, the war that still rages in eastern Ukraine, the the idea of, I guess, gathering, you know, with the national spirit around Christmas is really important too, um, especially because of the cultural underpinnings that are, you know, kind of distinctly Ukrainian that are celebrated in Ukraine, not just by those, I guess, you know, from a Christian faith practicing, but just, I think, all those vachai, all those traditions for Ukrainian Christmas have become a lot more prominently celebrated in a way in the last few years to try and, I think we build up that that identity a little bit further for those who maybe didn't always feel that way. Yeah, and I think to wrap it up, um, we we took a look at Europe's best destinations, and um, this year they ranked K's Christmas tree thirteenth uh, uh, for the best for the best Christmas tree. Um, but comparing to last year, where K ranked fifth instead, it's kind of a small drop, but it's still. Uh, one of the best places to go to still. Maybe they liked last year's Hogwarts hat on top of the Christmas tree. <laughs> so maybe that's why I got fifth for uniqueness, while this year's tree was a bit more traditional. But it's still good that Kiev's like, Christmas tree is a recognisable sort of annual tree now in Europe, and it can compete in terms of splendour and grandeur with countries such as Germany or Spain or, you know, the crappy tree in Trafalgar Square this year that <laughs> half died on the way there. So recently, as we're coming to the end of 2021, we spoke about the challenges currently faced in Ukraine, not only with the ongoing war, but with the military buildup in Russia. Um, and during that time, one of the things we've also discussed as, as a relation to the political situation in Ukraine was the evolving situation in Belarus around protests and then later with the um, manufactured... Um, later with the... Uh, purportedly manufactured migrant crisis on the EU border. And unfortunately, uh, we've got news this week of another uh, series of uh, protests and civil unrest in another former Soviet state, this time in Kazakhstan. Um, and in that particular uh, uprising of, of people, it, it seemed to have started from uh, a protest around uh, energy costs, that um, the day-to-day -day cost for energy were increased quite substantially uh, for all public citizens and for all businesses. And the protest is purportedly started from that, but um, it very quickly seemed to evolve into a protest against the regime that's been longstanding and in place uh, in, a, in a very dictatorial fashion, similar to Belarus for the la uh, since independence. Uh, so there's very similar types of, um, I guess when we look at what's been uh, protested, there's protests against the government, the authority, authority, authority the government uh, cor um, against corruption, against the authoritarian rule that's currently within the country, and also um, the there's protests against uh, political prisoners and the fact that so many people are being imprisoned 
for political or journalistic views. Uh, so unfortunately, um, as sad as the situation is, uh, it, it seems to sort of echo many of the things we've heard recently in Belarus. Um, and uh, unfortunately, again, we hear uh, as this news is evolving that uh, Russia, that, that the government of Kazakhstan has reached out to Russia to send troops to help secure um, and, and dis- uh, dispel the unrest. Um, and dispel is probably a very polite word for what's being done currently in Kazakhstan um, with those security forces. But it is a troubling uh, situation and it, and it shows a, a general uh, shift to the instability of the entire region, uh, whether we look at uh, Belarus now, Kazakhstan, and obviously in the earlier parts of the 21st century, it was Georgia and then Ukraine uh, that had its revolutions for dignity and and um, and independent uh, and true independence. Yeah, and so as Yusin has said, it's culminated with Russia sending in 2,500 peacekeepers into the country, and the US has obviously questioned why Russian peacekeepers need to be in a country where, you know, um, it's a it's a situation that can be easily resolved through democratic elections and all that. But obviously for Putin, Kazakhstan forms a key nation in his alternative bloc to Europe and NATO. So Kazakhstan is a founding member of Putin's Eurasian Economic Union and is, is a core member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is the Russian version of NATO. And for a very significant period of time, um, Kazakhstan was ruled by a single man, Nur Sultan, who only, I think, last year handed over power to the current president, because I think, oh, 2019, my apologies. And I think his whole reasoning was, is I've been here long enough. And yeah, like you then said, the protest is started off with seemingly an insignificant thing, the doubling of fuel prices and have now, uh, like the BBC is reporting that at one point they controlled Almaty's um, airport, which is crazy, in that how quickly these protesters have been able to um, organise because there's not really much of an official opposition in the country. And so it's all being people-led. Yeah, and I think um, some of the reports coming out of Kazakhstan in maybe the less uh, mainstream press have also suggested that um, some of the group's demands have even included um, the Kazakhstani government denouncing uh, the invasion of Crimea and the current war in eastern Ukraine. So it definitely seems that uh, as we look at kind of the, the instabilities we're discussing in several countries in the former Soviet states, that there is kind of a, a collective, I guess, ideal forming between a lot of the general populaces of Belarus and, and now Kazakhstan around not wanting to live necessarily under the kind of rule that they've been living under uh, for the past, uh, I guess, 30 years. The the other thing that's, I guess, interesting, and, and going back to where Alexa talked about uh, uh, Putin kind of needing to react to this situation, uh, I think it's very important to think about the way... It's, it's, it's probably important to realise that as much as, you know, losing Kazakhstan would be very, diff, would be very, very dangerous for uh, his, I guess, for the CIS or the, the trade group that... Um, Putin continues to try and have as a counter to the EU. 
The other thing that is very dangerous about this for Putin specifically is that these continued uprisings, one that's obviously gone for a very long period of time in the form of Ukraine, where a, a puppet government was denounced, the puppet ruler in Yanukovych was basically kicked out of the country, stealing cash and exposing all of his corruption, to Belarus now being unstable, but then you know being, again, Russian troops coming in to stabilise it, and then Kazakhstan. These examples of civil unrest are very dangerous for Putin with his own population within Russia. Um, and I think the, the, other, the other thing we have to think about here is that as much as there might be a need to keep these other countries at bay, the real danger for Putin and why um, he may show even more strength, unfortunately, in his actions towards Ukraine and Kazakhstan and Belarus is because of his need to make sure that he doesn't experience his own uprising of his own populace in Russia. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and especially since these, like you mentioned, these are countries that he wants to kind of yeah, incorporate into his, um, you know, his unified kind of block against NATO. Um, it's important that he, from his perspective, that he tries to keep them um, in line, I guess you could say. And it's quite, it's very worrying to see that, um, and now that more recently the president of Kazakhstan has labelled the um, these protests as terrorists and ordered the um, military and the um, troops that he has there to fire upon them, it it's an it's a very worrying trend because it reminds me very much of Maidan. But also within the last ten years, there's been a lot of these situations I can think of where governments have been cracking down aggressively against protesters, um, whether it's Maidan, whether it's the Russian protests that we saw uh, last year, uh, where massive amounts of people were being um, uh, arrested, whether it's Kazakhstan now, even in the US, where there was the um, the Black Lives Matter protesters. And I remember watching on Sunrise, one of the Australian um, cameramen and, the, and he, the journalist that was with him got beaten up by the cops. And it just seems that there's this trend going around um, where if there is anti-government protests, there seems to be an aggressive cracking down of those protesters. And I think that that's something that is very much comes from the handbook of Putin. And it's incredibly worrying to see that starting to spread to other countries, particularly countries like the US, which we once thought was a country where protesting was uh, a right. But that's another worrying trend I can see coming out of this. I think at the moment it's kind of hard to tell where Kazakhstan will go um, depending on how the government responds to the protests uh, in the future. Uh, either if they will break down and concede to the concessions that the protests protesters want or uh, it could sort of turn into what Belarus is now in that there are still protests, but it's a lot more diffused and in a sense it's sort of gone back to a status quo of the president still ruling the country however he wants, really. I think what you agree with you, Andre, I think suppression's probably the the other word for it that, that's probably been suppressed a little bit. But I think mm. what probably feels a bit different is the Russian involvement in Belarus seemed to be a little bit more gradual and kind of as the news stories of Belarus dropped away, the Russian troops sort of came in a bit more, whereas this has been such a quick knee-jerk response 
you know, within, within such a quick period of time. Like, basically, Kazakhstani forces were barely given an opportunity to even try and bring the situation under control. It was kind of like, it almost seemed a bit suspicious how quickly the request was made and, and kind of fulfilled. But Yeah, you're right about that. And it could possibly turn out to Kazakhstan returns to a more pro-Russian stance and even consider working more closely, more closely with uh, Putin and falling back into the what it was during the Soviet Union. Yeah.